0: Once upon a time, there was a kingdom. It was ruled by a wicked, unpatriotic government that gave the hard-working people's money away to idle layabouts and left the borders undefended, filling the land with foreigners. But then the wicked rulers were overthrown and replaced by a government that loved the people and wanted to give them back control over their lives. OK, you get the idea. That's the parable of British politics that conservatives tell... And judging by some of the most recent election results, it seems to resonate with a lot of voters. But what is the left's counter-parable? Why does the left sometimes seem so bad at storytelling as a way to persuade people and win campaigns? It's a question that's come up a few times on this podcast, and we thought it was time to tackle it head-on. This is Politics on the Couch, and I'm Raphael Bear. And I'm really glad to have had the chance to put my questions about the left, emotion, and political narratives to Lee DeWitt. He's a lecturer in political psychology at Cambridge University. He's also the author of a book, What's Your Bias? All about the science that accounts for voting behaviour. It's a great introduction to a lot of the themes and the terms that have come up in past episodes of this podcast. It was a real pleasure to sit down with him, in the usual virtual way of course, and talk about some things that have been nagging away at me for a while knowing he'd have answers. I started with this question of why, in the past decade or so, it has seemed that the Conservatives have a knack for connecting with an audience simply and directly on social and cultural issues in a way that eludes Labour. The left can have good arguments and policies that are popular, or at least opinion polls show they're popular, and yet, in campaign terms, it seems to get caught out, trapped on the wrong side of cultural dividing lines that favour the right.
1: There is now a clear delineation in British politics amongst the electorate um, between economic values and social values. And I think one of the things that catches the left out is that if it just looks at economic values and the agreement that it has with the population on economic issues and injustices of large corporations, it can feel like the left is very well in tune with the general population. You know, by and large, it is. They're not necessarily convinced that Labour have the answers for how to address some of these economic injustices, but they do agree with them. But when it comes to these these social questions, these more social cultural questions. Actually, what you see is that the the electorate is uh, has a quite wide range of views on these things, um, but that there's a cluster on the left that really sit quite out of line with the rest of the population on these issues, uh, and so I think the left can get a sort of false sense of confidence from its alignment on economic issues, but doesn't quite realise how out of step it is. On some
0: social and cultural issues. So, wait, when you say the left here, we should be clear. Do you mean the sort of the the activists, the party members, the Labour Party, the people who are who are really driving cultural opinion on the left? They, there is a sense that that they have sort of lost, have a tin ear, essentially, to something that is actually, that they think of as beyond the pale and very right wing and and awful, which would be sort of nationalistic uh, or or even xenophobic language about migration, for example, um, and just don't have have a way of then communicating that to voters who don't think of themselves as nationalistic or racist or xenophobic. They think of themselves as just ordinary, you know, mainstream British people, which, crudely speaking, in terms of the spectrum of opinion, they are.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think that
1: conflation between a kind of -of middle-of-the-road consensus of social conservatism and, you know, being extremely nationalistic, being explicitly endorsing xenophobic statements, um, I think it's a problem that the left tends to sort of cluster those two things together as if they're one sort of homogeneous group. And and yeah, you clearly see in the data that, you know, the vast majority of the the British population endorse some degree of um, social conservatism in their values. But it's actually a much smaller minority who will endorse explicitly xenophobic statements.
0: Right. So most people think of themselves very clearly as not racist and are very, would say they are anti-racist. And there is this sort of tendency on the left, I find, to think, well, yeah, you'd say you're not a racist, but there's always a but that comes and somehow there's all sorts of Uh, cognitions uh, and unconscious biases that mean that actually even while you claim to not be racist, as soon as you start uh, expressing your anxiety about social change in relation to migration, actually you've revealed some sort of uh, subcutaneous racism that means that this position is still beyond the pale. And what I find interesting is that there, there might be a psychological truth to that. We probably all do have lots of unconscious biases. It feels like a real dead end in terms of political storytelling because you're just telling people That they're racist when they think they're not, and then that's no way to persuade them.
1: Yeah, and I think delving into the psychology of those sorts of implicit biases is interesting because actually there's quite a lot of evidence that people's so called implicit biases, you know, the biases that they might not be so well aware of, actually they don't seem to predict people's explicit discriminations. So people's, you know, real, when people make a real life judgment call about something, Um, you know, those implicit biases don't seem to predict it well. So it might be that subconsciously we've learned to associate, you know, certain racial groups with certain negative connotations, but that doesn't mean in our explicit real world behaviour that we're actually going to act on those. I think this is where going into the psychology of this and and the ways in which people tend to frame different issues is quite helpful. Um, And there's a huge range of different ways in which people have tried to understand these distinctions. There's Obviously, Jonathan Haidt's uh, moral foundation theory, there's there's David Goodhart's people from somewhere, um, people from anywhere. And, you know, there's a whole range of ways in which you could helpfully think about the way in which people view particular issues. Uh, but one framework that I found particularly helpful, particularly for thinking creatively about how the left might understand some of the ways in which it's participating in perpetuating culture wars in ways that it might not really understand is a framework from uh, Arnold Kling, who's an economist in the US, who argues that the left tend to see issues through the perspective of who's, who's being oppressed here and who are the oppressors. Kling argues that the right tend to see things more in terms of order or chaos like is is this policy leading to you know order and stability or is it leading to chaos so where i think the left tend to see immigration through a lens of you know oppressed minorities and you know perhaps an oppressive nationalistic state But the right might be seeing it more in terms of, um, you know, just just managing order, you know, keeping order in managing a a huge degrees of of immigration to the UK. And so I I think that way in which different people might frame the issue might help understand why the left and the right are kind of talking past each other a bit on on issues like immigration.
0: That's very interesting, isn't it? Because it does suggest that the emphasis on border control in particular, when the left hears that they immediately make the connection, borders, migration, uh, who's who's coming in. Often it's people, uh, not just, well, in the case of freedom of movement, it was from the European Union, they were white people, but often a lot of the language, a lot of the way that the issue is presented in, in certain newspapers uh, is about non-white people, uh, and therefore immediately make the late leap to race. Whereas if I've understood this distinction you're drawing correctly, although that might be at some level subconscious in in the minds of people who feel very strongly about borders. There'll be a whole other set of people who it literally is, you know, as it says on the tin, it's about borders. It's about who's running the whole place. You can't have chaos. You can't just like not count how many people there are in the country. And if the left attacks that proposition in terms of race, they're sort of talking not only just over the heads of an important audience, but they're accusing that audience of something that they're really not feeling or don't think that is their actual motivation.
1: That's how i describe it, yeah. I mean, I changed my attitude on this a bit when I was living in Belgium, because when I moved there... Uh, as an immigrant, although under freedom of movement, you know, a police officer came and knocked on my address to check that I was actually living at the place that I claimed to as an immigrant. And, you know, I had to have an ID card. Um, but, you know, these these were things that were, that were uh, very acceptable within uh, Belgium. And it's something i thought about within a UK context. And actually, um, myself and uh, Tessa Buchanan, who's a PhD student of mine, and Alan Renwick uh, at UCL, we did a bit, little bit of polling on this with YouGov. Looking at attitudes towards immigration from the EU, particularly in the context of the fact that the EU allows us to implement already under EU rules, we would have been allowed to implement certain controls over EU immigration, particularly after three months. If people didn't have a job where they were earning a certain amount or if they didn't have savings, uh, we would have been within our rights, even as a member of the EU, to have asked those people to go home. Now, we never really implemented that rule and we didn't really have the infrastructure to implement that rule. And one of the bottlenecks to that was not having ID cards. Um, So we we asked people back in uh, 2019 what they would think about having ID cards to help manage that process. And I think it was about 77% of leavers were very much in favor of that idea which highlights, um, whereas, you know, Remainers weren't necessarily particularly keen on the idea. And I'm not necessarily saying we should have ID cards, but in terms of how the issue is framed, I think the fact that at least some leavers would have been to some extent more satisfied if we had a more managed process and we would have had ID cards shows that for them, the issue is, you know, more about order and control than it necessarily is about race or, you know, who's oppressed
0: or or, or who's doing the oppressing. I mean, that's why the Australian points-based system concept was so popular. Um, with certainly with Lee voters. And I was always a little bit torn on this because I always suspected that, you know, it, it had a double function. Points-based system made it sound like it was all terribly fair and it wasn't being racist. You weren't just saying we don't want beastly foreigners coming in. It was just saying, you know, there, there's a system and if you tick the right boxes, you're, you're allowed in and that's good. Uh, but also having Australian just got a whiff of you know, that that aspect of the Brexit worldview, which likes countries that are you know, Canada and Australia and the US and doesn't mention that the thing that's particularly attractive about them is that they happen to be white. So there was a bit of a dog whistle there. And I had this argument with various people who said, no, that's really not what it is at all. It's the points thing that really lands. In a way, I mean, you mentioned Jonathan Haidt, but I don't want to get into the various different moral frameworks that he talks about, but that sense that particularly with immigration, you, you have conflicting notions of of fairness that really throw the left and right in, in different directions. They think they're talking about the same thing. So a left view would be fair in terms of what is just to, for example, refugees or asylum seekers or even economic migrants who just want to start a better life for themselves in a new country. Uh, and the fair thing is to, you know, to treat those people with humanity whereas the right come in terms of fairness well we've worked hard we've you know built this society there are rules and you can't just let anyone come in uh, and as it were just you know play the system for their advantage that's not fair on us and they're both using the word fair but it's taking them in completely different directions politically
1: yeah and i mean so this is where i think the left does have more room for maneuver on these issues which it tends to close down when it just sort of frames the issue of well you know if you're against immigration you're racist, or you know borders are inherently racist rather than being a you know pragmatic necessity in terms of the current way in which the world works. One of the ideas in which of, of you know how you might appeal to social conservatives is to ground things more in terms of British traditions, British values, British history. And we do have a history of uh, taking in refugees at key moments uh, in history. And you know, so you could you could think about building a narrative about how you know Brit- Britain has a responsibility to refugees around the world, and you know we could construct a, a, a more patriotic narrative around our role in the world by being um, more compassionate about refugees. And I think you might find that actually there's more scope for receptivity to that kind of argument amongst the population, uh, and even amongst some of these more social, socially conservative voters, then you might assume if you just think, well, everyone who's opposed to
0: immigration is is just racist, and there's no way that you'll be able to persuade them. And I did see a promising attempt at that recently uh, in discussion of the government's proposed borders bill, uh, which is framed very much uh, in the standard conservative idiom, uh, clamp down on illegal migration, making it harder for everyone to get into the country, including people with legitimate asylum claims. Uh, and someone raised the challenge, I can't remember who, how would this have worked with the kinder Kindertransport, well, which is a historic episode of Britain taking in refugees, of which conservatives are presumably very proud. So there is potential there uh, and yet it seems that finding those those positive progressive narratives is still hard because of some wider more fundamental squeamishness on the left about the whole idiom of patriotism uh, and national storytelling there is for reasons i can't quite discern or, or unpack a reluctance to go there at all Uh, which makes it hard to go there in a progressive liberal direction.
1: So I think there's a wider issue here about this, you know, narratives around nationalism and the extent to which collective identities can ever be something that we should tap into or rely on or could be used as a force for good. I changed my mind on this. Um, actually, going to a talk by uh, Tariq Modood, who's a uh, sociologist at Bristol. His argument was that you know this is such a prevalent feature of how we think about and interact with the world: our sense of national identity, our place, our, our sense of place, and camaraderie with the people with whom we share. Um, you know, more cultural experiences that just to abandon the concept of nationalism and not talk about it just creates this vacuum that will be filled. And in the UK, that vacuum has been filled um, by narratives that have been developed on the right. Um, So, you know, I think it's totally understandable that the left is very nervous about people who come out and say, um, you know, I'm a patriot, we should be patriotic or we should be waving flags. But I do think that the left has to... Uh, grapple with this issue issue of nationalism and think about how to reconstruct a more progressive story of our national history. And there are people who are doing this, maybe they were thinking about this. And you mentioned the kinder transport. There are other things you can sort of look back to in t- sort of, you know, the Chartist movement and forms of protest in the UK, that, um, you know, the, the fight for votes for women in the UK. There, there, there's this progressive history that you can look back on. And, and partly why this is so important in the psychology of this is because. If you have a, a narrative that is more clearly grounded in who people think we already are, then you're not kind of threatening their sense of identity. You know, you're not going kind to of getting the sense of like, oh, people who are taking the knee, who are a, a, a Marxist, and they're trying to undermine our way of life. You know, that the, the right are quite good at constructing that narrative, and that's where the left, I think, um, need to have need to be able to create a narrative that's so grounded in our sense of who and what we are. The, the more sort of middle-of-the-road socially conservatives don't see it as a threat to their identity. Actually, they see it as an extension of their identity. And I think ideally, if you were to do that really well, you wouldn't have to go around waving a flag. You wouldn't have to go around saying, I'm a patriot. You know, you'd, you'd have a narrative that's so deeply sort of ingrained in the story of our history that
0: people would recognise that it, that it resonates with their values. That is fantastically important, I think, and, and and so true. I was just thinking as you were saying that about um, how vital the NHS is as an institution for the left and in fact it has become almost a kind of emotional intellectual crutch that a lot of the left in its doldrum years recently out of power has relied on. Uh, and you know the conservatives they know it they, they they desperately want a piece of NHS solidarity uh they they know it's sacrosanct it's been described as as the closest thing you know that Britain has to a secular religion uh, and it was you know it was a product of the of the radical labor government after the war. this really is one of my favorite subjects in terms of difficulties that the left liberal side of British politics has, which is defining a a manageable unit of solidarity, because ultimately a lot of left and progressive politics is trying to uh, instrumentalize solidarity into policy. It's basically doing redistribution and at the level of your street or your family, it's easy. You know, you see parents look after their children, neighbours help each other out. That's fine. And, and and everyone can get their heads around that. At the level of the European Union, it completely didn't work. I mean, it's like the the, the idea that you would pay into a budget uh, and it would go off To brussels and then be redistributed and somehow you might get something back in structural funds well clearly that failed as an argument for solidarity it doesn't even work between germany and greece it's hard right so you need something in between and as you were just saying the 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 nation state does seem to be a very stable reliable unit on which in a popular imagination people can see a politicized type of solidarity being applied but, and I'll finish this point soon so you can talk, the, the left, because of its internationalist ideology sometimes, seems to really struggle with that. The idea that okay, it is okay to say the nation is, as it were, the, the largest denomination of human unit in which we're going to talk about an available type of solidarity. Because once you draw the line at the nation, you've created an other and they are foreign. And I, that seems to me the, the sharp end of that, that problem.
1: Uh, yeah, that's really excellently put, um, and and I think the UK does have a particular problem here because you know we do have a problematic history. You know, we were a colonial power. We we did implement the the slave trade for. Uh, you know, a long part of our history. So I, I think the left has very legitimate reasons to be sceptical of constructing naive stories about the positive role that we played I- in the past. I think this is also interesting to frame in terms of, you know, why the left might be doing slightly better in Wales and in Scotland, because I don't think it has quite that same problem of, you know, the national identity being seen as historic a, a historically oppressive identity. Um and I, I think that's one of the reasons why this is quite hard for the left to navigate in the uk that you know our history is one in, in which clearly we, we were an oppressive state in some ways. Um, so how we skillfully construct a narrative and understanding of our history, you know, given given that context. It's where, you know, I think that Andy Burnham has got an excellent point that, you know, the, the, the Labour Party should maybe even move down a level and think about more, you know, building up from local identities. Um, around the country and start trying to be a more grassroots party of local communities, which I think in the past, naturally, it was because the way in which work was organised, um, that, you know, people would form unions as part of their their work. And, uh, you know, the, the affiliation with the Labour Party was sort of intrinsic. that you know, just as part of the community you you were a part of, you were a member of the Labour Party, and that was where the level at which things were organised. And I think Andy Burnham is right that the party needs to get back to more grassroots organising, to you know, tell stories about uh, what it means to be from Manchester or from Liverpool or from, from Preston and, you know, build
0: from the ground up. I mean, talk about the left doing quite well in Scotland, uh, which I agree is very much part of the, the Scottish self-image as in in intuitively more social democratic in the Nordic Scandinavian model as part of political culture. And there is this very, complex argument over whether or not the SNP can be seen as a party of the left. I mean, they've got nationalists in their name for a long time uh, and still to an extent do resist that categorization just because I, I think I've always thought that nationalism is just not something the left should really be sort of playing around with. But inevitably, there is a narrative about redistribution and taxation that's more available in Scotland and as part of a, a national project, whereas you know, something, again, you said a little bit earlier about a progressive history that is difficult to have or that Labour Party has failed to mobilise a little bit is what we're really talking about there, I think, is the language of of English oppression. I mean, you know, there's there's no available mythology of you know, of the of the enclosures or even you know, the tall puddle martyrs or Peterloo. There are these things that should be there uh, as part of a story of an English march for liberation that people feel is part of their collective history. Yet what we've got as English collective history is all the sort of, for want of a better word, Downton Abbey, costume drama, top-down, and aristocratization of what it means to be English, which, which writes radical, yeah, basically working class uh, Englishness very often out of the picture. I mean, you, know, you could throw in a bit of you know a brassed-off um, and these sorts of things, which which rehabilitate it a bit, but it's definitely the not a as much a salient part of Englishness uh, as I think the Labour Party needs it to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, you you made this point earlier in the the conversation about how um, you know maybe the right can can better tap into kind of human biases or, or or that sort of thing, and I just wanted to come back to that here. That um, you know. That's one of the things I worry about as a psychologist, that I think people like kind of jumping on this idea that, you know, we we have biases and we're irrational in certain ways and that, you know, political parties can exploit these things. Um, And, you know, there is an element of truth to that. And there's an element to which, you know, fake news is, is, is a big problem in elections um but I, we need to not be too patronizing about human nature and about you know who we are and how we form our sense of identity and i, I think if you, you know if you just sort of latch onto some psychology and think oh you know we're just a bit groupish and a bit irrational and we're being biased by things you know and that's why the left isn't doing well at the moment i think that underplays who and what we are and i, and I think this point that actually the left hasn't really been working hard for a long time to think about a story of unity and community, uh, you know, because it hasn't been putting in that hard work, thinking about that narrative and story about who we are and why the policies that the party is articulating follow from that story. I think that's one of the reasons why the left is, you know, isn't doing so well. Um, You know, in in Scotland, I don't think it's that, you know, there are fewer socially conservative voters in Scotland, you know, racial prejudices, I think, are just as clear in Scotland as they are in England. But I do think the SNP has managed to you know more skillfully position itself into a place where it can kind of hold uh, more of the center ground on some of those social issues which i think i think does allow it to be certainly more progressive uh, more left on economic issues i think it does allow it to be more left on cultural issues as well I and mean, the way in which nicola sturgeon you know talks about immigration is completely different to the way in which people in the conservative party in westminster talk about immigration
0: i very strongly agree actually with your point that it's dangerous to lapse into a kind of eye-rolling ultra-rational or even sort of pseudo-rational liberal view of of cognitive biases as something that the the stupid conservative people fall into whereas we the wise left um uh, can sort of see beyond that and, and are, are, are wringing our hands saying why how can we make our rational politics cut through to the sort of the troglodyte masses who keep voting conservative (laughs) against their best interests. That's a grotesque caricature of an argument, but it is a sort of, that that does sort of lurk in the background in a lot of left argument. It's like, well, it's the the sort of the sheep are voting against their own interests because they don't understand. And I wonder, I mean, it's something that used to frustrate me a lot when Ed Miliband was leader of Labour Party, an impression I got that he thought some of these cultural and identity questions uh, were basically a little bit icky uh, and that it was almost beneath a, a bien pensant left proposition to even get down and have those arguments because actually there was a macroeconomic solution to this uh, and it was actually all about distribution uh, and structures of power and that if you could sort of unblock the sluices of distribution and fairness would flow through the economy, you would wash away all the resentment about immigration, wash away the resentment of the way the benefit system was working. Uh, and I always felt that that was a little bit Marxian, not not sort of directly Marxist, but it bore the legacy of, a, of a quite a Marxist way of looking at the way societies work. Whereas, you know, there's that great. Uh, Andrew Breitbart I mean Andrew Breitbart's an awful appalling you know essentially far-right American was far-right American thinker but he does have that great memorable line that you know politics is downstream of culture which is what the American conservatives and the the Trump movement and Steve Bannon those sorts of people understood brilliantly and what I think the current conservative party understands quite well and I worry that certainly Ed Miliband didn't get that I think and I worry that Keir Starmer doesn't really get that either that he still in his heart thinks if I could avoid getting down into that kind of conversation but find a good economic argument that would cut through, then I would go over the head of culture arguments and I'm not sure that's available.
1: Interesting. I mean I think Keir's approach is quite different actually. I think Keir is making a relatively superficial pivot for social conservatives you know saying I'm a patriot uh, you know having these briefings about having more flags. Um, But I think unfortunately that you know that's triggering the left of the party to say things which then further alienate these uh, social conservatives. Um, I think the, the interesting point about Ed Miliband's point is, you know, if only the economic system were flowing more fairly, then some of these cultural concerns might not be so prevalent. Um, I think there's probably some truth to that. Actually, um, I think that uh, you know, there's evidence that when a society is more under threat, uh, people do tend to turn to more socially conservative ways of thinking. Um, and you, you know you see that most explicitly after uh, terrorist attacks, uh, for example, you know as evidence of, after the terrorist attacks in London, that um, people shifted towards slightly more socially conservative attitudes. And I think you know we shouldn't we should keep in mind the fact that Brexit happened after a massive financial crisis, which destabilized the sense of uh, you know, fairness and stability within the economy. So, I think Ed Miliband may have a point that if you can get in charge of the levers of power and organise an economic system that is uh, you know, fair in its modes of distribution and more collaborative in its uh, mechanisms of, of operation, um, then actually some of these cultural concerns might shift a little bit. Actually, um, there is an excellent researcher Sherry Wu who's recently done some great research on this looking at the US and China showing that if you introduce more collaborative working practices into the workplace then some of then some of these socially conservative attitudes uh, start to decrease a little bit uh, when when people adopt more collaborative ways of operating in the workplace so I, I think it might there might be some truth to the idea that if you can get into power and change the way the economic system works, then you might sort of ease some of these, perceptions of threat, which might push people towards more uh, culturally uh, conservative views. But of course, the problem is you have to get into power. And, uh, you know, unless the Labour Party uh, or the left generally learns how to navigate some of these uh, issues, then I don't think
0: it's going to get into power. I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, that, that if, as you were saying that, I was going to raise because I think the thing that I found frustrating isn't so much the underlying argument, you know, we, the, it's the, the sort of the spirit level argument, essentially, that everyone one's happier and better off if you have a, a more egalitarian model and, and you know that there are perfectly good social democratic ethical cultural and political arguments one would hope would land and would persuade conservatives even economic conservatives and, and cultural conservatives that the more egalitarian system uh, suits them as much as it does the people who they might previously have thought were just sort of getting free handouts from the state. Um, the, the problem is Turning that proposition into an effective campaign narrative and the the sort of the ickiness that I, I worry about is the sense that it's it. When you say to people, as I have done to Labour MPs and I've said to Ed Miliband himself on a couple of occasions, you have to find a language, you have to tell parables, you have to do the storytelling that brings this alive for people. And frankly, you need to have a leader who just can somehow have enough automatic X-factor charisma and authenticity that they will be the messenger for this. That the, the reaction you would sometimes get was, well, that's the sort of dis, dishonest tricksy side of politics. Politics that maybe David Cameron and George Osborne uh, were good at and Boris Johnson is very good at, but the left should be bigger than that. Uh, and that seems to me a, a renegement on a commitment, the basic commitment of politics, which is win the argument. Uh,
1: you know, I, I didn't see the briefing, so I didn't see, you know, what exactly was presented. But this idea that, you know, waving a flag is a useful thing to do at the moment, um, you know, I think there is a way of doing this which could come across as quite superficial, potentially quite, you know, manipulative um, and insincere, you know, I don't think that's going to go down well uh, with voters, you know, as, as Annie Burnham says, uh, you know, getting back to grassroots communities, working up from those communities, having a genuine narrative, uh, you know, that talks about, um, uh, you know, local business owners on a, on, a high, on, a, on a struggling high street and the way in which international corporations are undercutting. Uh, these small local businesses that are at the centre of their communities through not paying tax, you know that that connects an economic issue for which there's quite a large consensus in the in the UK. Even a lot of conservative voters uh, think that there are unfairnesses in the economic system, like big corporations not paying enough tax. It it then connects that economic argument to a, a cultural issue, a sort of small independent businesses in local communities. I think it's right that MPs are hesitant around, you know, some kind of superficial storytelling around this. Um, but I, but I do think they need to you know come up with a narrative that genuinely does connect the dots on these issues, talking about that.' maybe sort of snobbish idea on the left that you know people are just being irrational and we just have to sort of get around the fact that people are being irrational in how they're voting, and we need to some figure out some way of sort of getting the voting system together to get us into power. And I think this is where you get this you know these conversations about this kind of progressive alliance. You know there was some polling out a few weeks ago suggesting that if, you know, one of the left-wing parties or, you know, left-leaning parties, depending on how you define it, were to stand down in various seats, that people would then say they would vote for, you know, the remaining option of a left-wing party in that seat. And, you know, under this this polling, they suggested that, uh, you know, a left-wing coalition government would get into power if there were th- this kind of pact. Well I think that polling is is very naive um and I think that Boris would relish the idea of fighting a kind of progressive alliance because I think he would frame it as a kind of uh, you know elitist movement that was trying to take away your democracy from you that was trying to take back you take away your traditions and and British heritage so um, I, I don't think the left's route back into power is through some sort of strategic cooperative arrangement, at least not in some sort of top-down strategic sense where people could feel like they were being manipulated. If it came from a more you know, grassroots movement of you know, people feeling more educated and empowered about who to vote for in their local area... Um, I think that might have legs. But, uh, you know, I think it, if it came down as some sort of top-down rational strategy, uh, I, I think Boris would relish fighting against that.
0: Well, I think what you said there is so important that the, the obvious hazard, which might not be obvious until someone articulates it as well as you just have, is that the Conservatives would love to be able to say, look, these, this is basically Remain 2.0. They're ganging up to try and stop you having the people's government because they don't actually have an argument. They, they're just the ancien regime and they want power back. And I can see that campaign working quite well. Uh, and, it, and it reaches into, I think, something we haven't touched on, but it's very important. It gets conflated a bit when we're talking about why Labour doesn't manage to get its messaging right and why the left struggles, uh, which is the difference between whether the Labour Party has deep brand problems that it's in denial about and whether left arguments don't get. Traction uh, And those two things get bundled up together quite a lot. So, for example, I agree on that, that the briefing that we read about more than actually know what it contained about should Labour basically use flags more. Um, I think it depends if you have a strategy which might be necessary for Labour of demonstrating that the party has changed to people who've literally said, I'm just not interested in that party anymore. It's not for me. It's not for people like me. There might be a moment where Keir Starmer has to stand up at Labour conference and say, to his own party, but for the wider audience. Frankly, if you would rather wave a Cuban or a Venezuelan flag than a Union Jack, you're in the wrong conference hall. Uh, And it would be a very, you know, it would be quite a brutal thing to say and it might trigger conflict, but maybe something like that is necessary, literally just to say to a certain audience, look, I get it. That's very different from having a a strategy of mobilising a narrative of progressive Englishness that can compete with the nationalistic uh, conservative one. So, I, I don't know, there's a sort of Does Labour need to win back its licence to operate uh, with certain audiences and does the left need to have a different set of arguments, which are superficially the same thing, but actually aren't? And and the the progressive alliance to me seems to be a way that a lot of people in Labour and around Labour basically avoid making that distinction by saying, oh, well, we're all just anti-Tories together, aren't we?
1: I think if Keir were to set it out more clearly and say, you know, look, our our voting coalition is massively split between people who are very socially liberal and people who are more socially moderate, and you know th- this leaves us in a in a challenging position. What what do we want to do about that? Um, and you know if he, if you he were to boldly have a conversation at conference and say, you know, if, you, if you'd rather wave some other country's flag than, than the Union Jack, this isn't the party for you. Um, I think that would be a more earnestly important conversation for the, the Labour Party uh, to have. Labour Together wrote a report on the 2019 election and, uh, you know, wh- why they lost and what they might need to do going forward. Um, And, you know, they identify that Corbyn was a big factor and that the way in which Corbyn had been portrayed as a kind of anti-tradition, anti-Britain candidate was, was, you know, a big part of that election. Um, and, And the Labour Party did need to shift the narrative on from that, you know, the kind of new management branding, I thought, was quite good immediately afterwards. But there was another part of the Labour Together report, which I think they haven't paid as much attention to, which is that... Um, yes, the Labour Party needs an, uh, to, to figure out how it can, le- you know, legitimately uh, speak to and win over more middle of the road social conservatives, but it needs to do that in a way that holds the, the Labour electorate together. Um, and I think there are, you know, some quite I've got some friends and family who I think are quite reasonable members of the Labour Party who are currently, you know, in despair and tearing their hair out about what Keir is doing, Um, because I think all they see is, are these sort of nods to social conservatives, um, and, you know, it's sort of triggering this loss aversion that they've previously lost their party uh, under Tony Blair, and that, you know, this is going to happen again. And I, I think one of the big problems then for the Labour Party is that it sort of kicks off this internal civil war. And so as much as the party might have needed to signal, you know, we're no longer the party of Jeremy Corbyn, we're under new management... I think, unfortunately, if the party does that in a way which at the moment it's kind of been heading towards of sort of trying to create civil war within the party, then unfortunately that makes the party look disordered and chaotic in a way that certainly isn't going to win over the, the sort of middle of the road social conservatives who, who want uh, you know, a well organised party, or want a party that looks well managed and looks uh, well ordered. Um, so I, you know, I think there's, there's a risk of that uh, backfiring there.
0: Yeah. And at the same time, I think if you get enough despair that actually Labour can't form a government, the feeling that you might as well just express your your resentment of the way things have gone by some other vehicle, whether it's Remainers, um, Liberal Remainers backing the Lib Dems or, um, or the Greens, could just really cannibalise the Labour vote. Yeah. Or George Galloway in Batley and Spen. Or George Galloway. Yeah. It, it could be very, very dangerous. And I think that comes brings us back a little bit to that progressive alliance problem which to me seems to rest so heavily on the idea that there are enough people in the country who hate the tories uh that you ought to be able to organize them into a government which which might be true but doesn't really I'd be interested in your view on, on what the character of anti-toryism is as a sort of a psychological proposition I mean I'm 47 years old I I sort of came of age politically in the 80s and into the 90s uh, very much you know culturally uh, got all the sort of liberal left antibodies in my bloodstream against ever voting tory uh, and, and not and that is even you know so much stronger in in many parts of the world that really felt the the brunt of deindustrialization under Thatcher and yet they overcame those antibodies and voted for Boris Johnson and what is the the political, psychological character of not being Tory uh, and how sufficient is that to then form some kind of other political identity? Or is that basically a a sort of a shimmerer?
1: Because of middle of the road, socially conservative mindset, uh, like I say, it it doesn't like the idea of threat. It doesn't like the idea of a threat to one's country or or one's identity. When you try and construct a coalition on the idea of being anti-something, it's just not going to appeal to that part of the electorate. And so I'm not sure how I would characterize the anti-Tory sentiment, um, except to say that, uh, you know, there are these different components to it. There are people who come at it from a strongly economic perspective, um, but might be quite socially conservative. There's people who are uh, strongly uh, also socially uh, on the left. Uh, So, uh, you know, again, there's that mix of people who are anti-conservative. And because it's a mix, uh, there's this risk that they end up, you know, fighting amongst each other a- a- about things. So yeah, I don't think there's a sufficient unity um, of values uh, to construct something that's just about being anti-Tory. I think you have to construct a positive sense of shared interest, um, and I do think that is easier to construct on economic issues. Um, And I do think the Labour Party could be doing more at the moment to signal that it is to the left of the Conservative Party on economic issues. I mean, that's where, um, you know, it has more room with the electorate to move in that direction. It's also... Uh, the direction that Joe Biden has gone in. And also, you know, Biden's direction has opened up room for manoeuvre on the economic left that wasn't there before. You know, there were these conversations around, well, if you raise corporation tax, corporations will just move to some other country. Well, if Joe Biden is organising international cooperation to make sure there's a sort of minimum threshold of corporation tax, um, then, you know, that potentially changes the, the, the paradigm of that conversation. Um, so I do think there's room for manoeuvre on the left on, on economic issues. And I do think that the Labour Party could do something at the moment to shore up its voter coalition by doing more to signal uh, that it is to the left on economic issues, um, but do that in a way that is, you know, has a deeply rooted connection to cultural issues. I think would be very be very powerful. Again, though, I think they you know they came up with a policy of buying British recently. Um, which I, I, you know is on the right lines, but I think it's just a little bit superficial. And I think people just see through it a little bit too much.
0: No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and when I heard the, the, the sort of bi-British thing, you, it has that sort of that Pompidou Centre problem, which is that you can see all the workings on the outside. It didn't feel necessarily that it had been drawn from, it didn't fit into a, a, a bigger story that Labour was telling yet. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, the conservatives have understood that there is space to the left, certainly of where the Thatcherite proposition was. I mean, ultimately, Boris Johnson has signaled that he doesn't care about the, the national debt, really. Um, that might be a problem down the line. But for now, you know, Keynesian economics has basically won the argument uh, uh, after Ed Balls banged his head against it in vain for a long time. Um, there is this sort of. I don't know, for want of a better word, pseudo-social democratic thing going on in the way the Conservative Party, or at least the Boris Johnson project, talks about economics. Uh, and I, I suppose there's a, the danger is, you know, well, the challenge for Labour is how do you contest that without you know, then going off into the sort of, well, we'd nationalise the internet and and start doing the, the sort of shopping list of, well, we can be even lefter to prove we're the, the party that does this more authentically. That seems to me to be a dilemma.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we're coming back to a recurring issue here of the kind of, um, you know, where the left really has some hard work to do in in thinking more clearly about what it stands for. I mean, I do think the Conservatives are fragile on economic issues. Because if you look at where conservative MPs are, uh, Tim Bale and colleagues have done some really good analysis showing that Conservative MPs are much further to the right of their voters. You know there is a fragility to the economic uh, argument there. So I think if the if the Labour were to genuinely push the Conservatives further to the left on economic issues, I do think that would cause them a lot of problems. Um, And I think particularly if you pick the issues right, so like the cladding scandal and the way in which you know large uh, building companies have got away with you know shorty biz building practices, and then it is leaseholders who were then having to pick up uh, the bill for this, I, I think that's actually quite an emotive issue for lots of people. That does speak to this, you know, being able to own a home in your local community, and does pit this sort of, you know, being in the back pocket of corporations versus, you know, being uh, for the economic well-being of the average worker. Um, I do think that you know, there's, there's a sort of broader issue here. There's a worry about, you know, the where the depth of thinking on labor issues is really coming from, um, I, I, you know, I worry that a lot of MPs are spending a lot of time on Twitter and a lot of time WhatsApping each other. And, and I wonder where this, you know, deep thinking about what kind of economic narrative we actually want, what kind of narrative about the, the place of the country we actually want. Policies that they're putting out are quite superficial. And I think voters see through that. In, in 2019, you know, it was clear that a number of the policies um, that Corbyn and Macdonald were putting forward were popular, but people didn't Believe that that the Labour Party were going to actually be economically credible on them, um, and that's where I think the the left again does have some hard thinking to do in terms of. Um, You know this simplistic story that the you know the left is just in favour of nationalising industries as a way of advancing the economy. You know that that story and that appeal no longer works. But the left hasn't really thought through. Well, what what does it? How does it approach economics there? But I I think I think the actual arguments are there. I think Mariana Mazzucato is a professor of economics at UCL. Uh, has written excellently about the idea of the entrepreneurial state. You know, not the idea that the state should necessarily own uh, industries, uh, but the state should. Help structure the economy so as to make the economy uh, more effective and more innovative. And you know, the vaccine is a nice example of where uh, the state and the market can work together in a way that is mutually beneficial to everybody. Now, Marianne Mazacarte's argument she makes it far more articulately than any Labour MP I've ever seen talk about economics. And I do wish that more eco- more Labour MPs would just go on training courses about economics because they don't sound like they know what they're talking about when they talk about economics. But um, you know, Marianne Mazacarte's narrative is. Maybe a little bit too academic and it does need grounding in stories that people can understand about people's daily lives and this is where of course, you know, framing the national debt as the household debt was probably, you know, one of the most powerful uh, metaphors um, that a conservative government has ever come up with because, you know, people can think about the national debt in in relation to their own debt in a way that makes intuitive sense, but is, of course, massively uh, misleading. Um, and, you know, the left has never really succeeded in coming up with a, a metaphor to, to counteract that. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think more broadly, and again, to this point of like, you know, when, Rachel Reeves says, you know, by British you can sort of see the scaffolding on the outside of the policy. It's, You, see, it's, you know, it's quite superficial and quite transparent. And I, I worry about where the depth of thinking within the labour movement is coming from. And that's also one of the reasons why I like Andy Burnham's point about you know, trying to get the party back more to being a grassroots community organising party. Because I think when you're working from the grassroots up, actually genuinely solving the problems people are facing in their daily lives. I think you will start to articulate a narrative um, that, that does actually resonate with people. Uh, Labour is, is now in power in a huge number of major cities in the UK, um, and that, that kind of power base offers the Labour Party a sort of starting point for showing what it can do in power. You know, I think that's important on the sort of economic competence uh, dimension as well, that, uh, showing that Labour in local government uh, can, can uh, work effectively.
0: there is a hazard there isn't it that the conservatives understand that and therefore deliberately try to press down on that there's this devious and very effective kind of jujitsu manoeuvre that the Tories do which is essentially to, uh, has worked Worked in Hartlepool, uh, has worked in other places where you sort of you know, hollow out local government budget and then you go to places that have always had Labour councils and Labour MPs you say, well look what having uh, you know long generations of Labour incumbency have done to your area, what you really need here is a Tory MP who can go to Westminster and get some money for you uh, It didn't quite work in Batley and Spend, although that was pretty much the argument. It does appear to have worked in Hartlepool uh, and, and you can see them doing it, they try it in London as well they really want to squeeze sadiq khan make tfl basically fail so you can say look you know these labor people they can't run anything what you need is tories um so i I agree with you entirely that a a sort of labor in government story would be a really effective way of getting out of the slightly over abstract desiccated left debates that don't really resonate with people um but you ideally, you'd have at more actual devolved power to really make that story sing, as it were.
1: I think human psychology doesn't like being cheated and doesn't like being tricked. Uh, you know, I think that's quite a prevalent feature of, of human psych- psychology. If, if the Labour Party were to press more effectively this idea that funding wasn't being distributed Uh, fairly to regions of the country that it controls. I I think people could recognise that that's a potential unfairness and and sort of fits into a broader kind of narrative around, you know, this sort of cronyism within the the Tory party that I think does have potential cut through with the electorate.
0: Yeah. And and the one rule for for them, another rule for everyone else uh, argument, my sense anecdotally as much as anything else is that That is resonating a little bit and it's something that Conservative MPs privately say they they worry does connect to a, a deeper folk memory of who the Tories are um and i think that again as you say sort of psychologically animates that the most stable emotional resource that politically you can tap into in i think british society is resentment of of cue jumping <laughs> and that is basically you know that was mobilized so effectively in the immigration debate by the right so effectively uh, again in you know, against the, the the established social security system during austerity you know in, in all sorts of cynical ways But that sense, if you if you can flip that against the Conservatives now, that the sense that there are people that you've waited patiently, you waited patiently, you know, to the extent of not even being able to go to the funerals when your family, uh, when when people you loved died in the pandemic, you know, the, 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 the sense that you did what you obeyed by, you obeyed the rules, you know, you did what you were told, you stood in your place in the queue, and then those people are jumping the queue. I think that has a lot of potential resonance.
1: Yeah, and actually, I mean, this comes back to a point um, that I really wanted to make in this conversation. I I do think one of the reasons why the left struggles also is because I do think it has a lot of really genuine grievances. Um, You know, you think about uh, climate change uh, and the the government love making uh, pledges on on climate change, but, uh, you know, committing to to action is sometimes uh, something different. The lack of humanity with which we in particular treat refugees uh, and you know some of the huge mistakes that Boris and his government have made uh, during this pandemic, the economic inequality that's built up, the, the huge wealth accumulation of the rich and the continued stagnation of the middle classes and the poor. I do think one of the problems is that you know, the left has so much to be passionately angry about. Unfortunately, because that anger gets channeled in ways, then sort of fractures the potential voting coalition of the left and sort of hands support over to the right. And I, I did want to give this example of, of um, you know, the protest bill being discussed recently, and the terminology that was used to oppose that bill, um, whether the, the people who were campaigning against these limitations on the right to pro- protest in the UK, instead of talking about some narrative around how protest is, you know, deeply ingrained in in our history, in our traditions. Um, okay, I mean, to, to be fair, some of them are talking about that. But, you know, the thing that, that cut through and the pe- thing that a lot of people saw was this hashtag, kill the bill. Um, so, you know, you, you're wanting to fight this piece of legislation that is eroding some of the freedoms and liberties that have advanced our, our democracy and the democratic process in the UK over centuries. And then to oppose it, you come up with this phrase, kill the bill, which, you know, once you understand this this way of thinking about, you know, the left thinking about oppressors and oppressed, you can see why that would appeal to some, some of the left, activists on the left. But you can also see how that's going to be really alienating uh, to people who are, you know, concerned, mainly who mainly see things through a lens of, of sort of order and chaos. And and I think that's a really big problem for the left, that, you know, there are these really big, genuine injustices out there. Um, But actually, then the way in which the left fight those, I think often just hands territory, particularly on sort of middle of the road, for middle of the road social conservatives, just hands territory to the conservatives.
0: Yeah, we had this conversation, actually, I think it was in the podcast we did with Drew Weston, where he got very animated about, how defund the police was a really counterproductive thing to be saying because although you know, when you heard the underlying argument articulated, you could see, okay, this is actually about sort of demilitarizing uh, police forces in ways that allows them to express their, their their sort of some of their racism in the most aggressive, uh, murderous ways. And actually, you need to reform the police, uh, which and that which is something most people could probably get behind. It, it it just sounded like you were saying take the police off the streets and cede them to rioters and criminals. What I found in that argument, when I did argue about defund the police as as a slogan with people. Uh, particularly on the left, almost a suspicion that the slogan functioned as a shibboleth and a test, and if you properly understood the the argument behind it, then you were... Part of the left in group, and you got it. And almost the people who are criticizing the slogan were proving themselves unworthy. That is a function that a slogan can do. It can kind of create a sense of group identity by the people who are shouting it. But it's it's the opposite of persuasion and the opposite of reaching out uh, to other people. Uh, and I think that with Kill the Bill, it, it sounds to me, I think it's, it's having potentially the same problem that it's almost maybe only unconsciously, but deliberately a barrier to say, well, you know, only the people who really understand what we're saying here are allowed in.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And and this sort of balance between expressing outrage and, you know, whether you're on side with that versus, you know, trying to persuade uh, and and trying to win people over. Um, I, I don't think that Twitter has been helpful for this dynamic. And there's more and more evidence um, that um, Twitter vocabulary that expresses outrage gets more attention. So you know, if you if you express outrage on Twitter, um, you're likely to get more likes and more retweets. You know, that then rewards you to express more outrage in the future. Um, In fact, a colleague of mine uh, here in Cambridge, Steve Ratcher, has just done an addition to this analysis showing that, in particular, when you express outrage about the other side, you get even more retweets and likes. Um, And so I do think there's an extent to which Twitter... Is fueling this way of approaching politics on the left that is, you know, much more about expressing outrage and and being rewarded for that expression of outrage than than it is about persuasion. And I, I think then Twitter creates this really dangerous sense of, you know, false false security that like, oh well, you know, thousands of people have liked my tweet expressing this outrage, so clearly, you know, lots of people understand and and you know, see the world in the way that I do. Um, but, you know, when you look at how a at, at proper representative polling about how these social conservative values distribute across the population, um, unfortunately, the kind of left wing a- activists really sit as outliers uh, to, to the rest of the population.
0: I think there's an even more dangerous uh, follow on from that as well, which is that I've started to encounter, which is, first of all, yes, people will think, well, Everyone broadly agrees with me because everyone I follow on Twitter seems to think what I think the availability biases and all the heuristics do tend to construct that sense in people's minds that their, their views are, are, are the mainstream at some level. But also, therefore, the thing that is doing well in politics or that I'm told by the mainstream media is, a, is, is the view is actually a lie and it must all be a trick. Uh, And that then I think that feeds the conspiracy theory idea that, you know, if 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 everyone in my environment, if everything I can see all the evidence uh, is actually one thing and yet the politics is doing something else, it can't be because my uh, thought bubble, my sort of social media silo uh, is an outlier. It must be because there's a conspiracy to actually go against what the truth is.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really dangerous element to this. You know, where do I go to for objective information? Uh, where what can? Where can I actually go to a trusted source? And you can clearly see that this was part of Trump's strategy. You know, talking about the news, the mainstream media as as fake news from an early stage. You know, it's not necessarily just so much about trying to advance his narrative. It, it's about trying to undermine the sense of you know being able to turn to a trusted source. Uh, at all, and yeah, I do think that's a it's a really dangerous uh dynamic and you know this comes back again to this issue of um you know the left does have some things to really be worried about and and really be concerned about um, but uh, you know it's it's gotta it's it's got think skillfully about how to persuade and in, in how it tackles these rather than actually jumping into this sort of outrage expression um you know actually undermining potentially the sense of who do you go to uh uh, to to who to 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 trust
0: okay but the good news because we we're out of time pretty much and with this podcast does like to find positive notes to finish on um is and and it's always a good idea to shut down twitter in almost any circumstances so we can just step away from the social media context because the good news is that actually from this conversation as i've understood that there is a whole wide available pool of issues uh, and and sort of, there are moral buttons that the left can push easily uh, that would animate an electorate to think, yes, this is how I want myself to be represented in politics. Whether it's in terms of uh, the history of, of of Britain as a society that's tolerant and is welcoming to refugees and expresses fairness, and uh, you know, whether there, there there is a collective enterprise that you know, we want as it to be as a country uh, to to share. Yeah, more evenly, and yeah, everyone remembers their place in the queue. All these things, and I suppose what I'm looking to you for now, Lee, is some sense that you have that this is within reach of uh, of of a of a Labour Party that that can mobilise those stories. That the the story is there to be told, uh, and and that there there is a kind of a brittleness about the the current conservative government proposition that is holding together all sorts of things uh, and relying on the on the the weakness of the opposition and actually uh, although it looks monolithic and vast and hard to bring down it might be a kind of a shell that could crack and splinter uh, and bring forth a bright tomorrow.
1: Yeah I think there are definitely fragilities as I said you know the huge difference in the economic values between the average conservative voter and conservative MPs uh, so the, you know there's a big wedge there definitely on the economic side but yeah definitely I think on the cultural side um, I, I think if um, the left were to do a little bit more thinking uh, about what's really driving people's motivations on some of these issues and not jumping to these sort of easy answers that it's you know it's just because people are racist or it's just because they' they're being misled by biases or misinformation. And certainly, you know, when I read Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, which you know, we haven't talked specifically about, but it has uh, very much informed my thinking. Uh, when I read it, I was very much of the mindset that um, you know, I was also raised in a very left-wing perspective. I was, I was taught that Margaret Thatcher was a swear word when I was a child. And uh, you know, I had this sense of just the sort of irrationality of how anyone else could have a perspective different than mine. Um and yeah reading the righteous mind whether you agree with you know the particular moral foundations that it articulates i think that sense that actually there are a range of different ways of seeing the world um, and as I said, we've talked about kling's framework of seeing an oppressor oppressed and and an order chaos axis there are different ways of seeing the world and i think if you can understand a little bit better how different people are framing issues in a way that's different to you um then i am optimistic that these could be effectively understood for a left-wing party like the Labour Party to use them more effectively.
0: Well, if the chief recommendation is that everyone thinks more, uh, then this is definitely the right podcast and something I can absolutely get behind. And also read more, read more and think more. That's my kind of advice. Um, I think we're probably out of time though, which is a shame because obviously there's so much more to get into here. It just leaves me to say, uh, Lee it, thank you so much. There's been really fascinating and just really scratched an intellectual itch that i've had for quite a long time Uh, and i was hoping that you'd be the person to help me with that and and you really have been so I'm, i'm tremendously grateful to you
1: great thanks a lot pleasure for me too
0: hello there this is phil the producer of the podcast making a very rare appearance i just wanted to thank you for listening and if you enjoyed it i'm assuming you did if you made it this far Perhaps you could share it amongst your friends, followers and family. Or even better, review it on Apple, as apparently that makes it more discoverable. Apologies that episodes aren't more frequent, but at the moment this podcast is produced just for fun and made in what little spare time we have. Thank you again to our wonderful guest, Dr. Lee DeWitt. In the episode show notes, we've got a link to his book and also links to some of the other books and academic papers he mentions. That's about all for now. Until next time, cheerio.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.